Hi, everybody. This is God's Hat for the Sad Truth. I have another fantastic guest today. We have a theoretical physicist, Lawrence Krauss, with us. I will shortly read his bio, but first, how are you doing, Lawrence? I'm, uh, I'm doing great. It's uh, Spring is here in Prince Edward Island, and went out for a walk and didn't see any snow in most of what I was walking on, so I'm in a good mood. Wait a minute. You're in Prince Edward Island? You're in Canada? You thought I was somewhere else, didn't you? I shouldn't have let anyone know. I shouldn't let the, yeah, I'm in Prince Edward Island, yeah. Now, I in, in preparing for our conversation i just did a quick you know cursory check of your bio i didn't know that you went to carlton university in ottawa that you were canadian maybe you could tell us about this because as you may know i'm in montreal yeah no i know no you didn't know that no i'm i um i was uh i grew up in canada i was born in the united states and moved to canada when i was three months old and grew up in toronto okay and then went to carlton for a variety of reasons one three reasons one because it was a physics program that I like two because it was a history program that I like and three because I wanted to become bilingual um actually tried to get in to McGill and also Université de Montréal and but because I was from Ontario they were going to make me take a year of what's called CEGEP or something like that and right. I've done 13 years of Ontario and it was enough for me anyway so I I did not know I was an American when I when I grew up and I when I moved to the United States to go to graduate school at MIT, I was on a visa. I was on a visa the entire time I was at MIT, and my, I was married at the time. My wife was on a the wife of a student visa, which is the worst visa you can possibly have. Right. She wasn't allowed any rights, couldn't work, couldn't do anything. And then when I when I moved to Harvard, I thought, well, I'd like to maybe try to get permanent residency in the United States. And I talked to Harvard lawyers, and they looked and they said, we we think you're an American. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, how do I find out? They said, apply for a passport. And um, and then I, I contacted my lawyer, who, by the way, was a, my lawyer, my brother, who was a lawyer in, in Quebec. He actually was a lawyer at, uh, and a professor at University of Sherbrooke. And um, he looked into it and said, well, you have to do something else. You have to fill out a form. And the form is, why haven't you behaved like an American for the last 30 <laughs> years? Or whatever? And the answer to every question was, I didn't know I was an American. So I filled wow. out that form, got a passport, tore up my visa, my wife's visa, and and uh, yeah, so I, I moved back to Canada after 45 years in the United States. And so now um, your permanent residence is in, in PEI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess I haven't really let that cat out of the bag yet, but now it is. It's out now. <laughs> uh, are you happy yeah. to be back? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be um, to be away from the US, first of all. And it was getting too crazy. I lived in Oregon, which for when I lived there was wonderful. And then it began to get nutty. Yes. As I was thinking, that's not the reason at the time we moved. Right. But no, where I live is just, it's like the world was 40 years ago, as far as I'm concerned. Everyone talks to everybody and, and, it's, and people are lovely and kind. And, and of course, it's beautiful. I live right near the ocean. And, and I hope that since you're back in Canada, you now realize that you have to self flagellate every morning with some land acknowledgements. I trust that you do do that, Lawrence. Yes. Uh, well, I, yeah, in between my five uh, prayers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Let me let me just quickly read uh, some of your key bios for the four people who don't know who you are. You are the president of the Origins Project Foundation. We can talk about that if you'd like after host of the Origins podcast. Somehow the invitation for me to come on that podcast must have been lost somewhere in the mail, but I'm sure that will be rectified. I'm sure it'll be rectified. <laughs> Professor of physics for many, many years at many institutions, including Yale, Case Western, and most recently at Arizona State University, where you retired from in, I think, 2018. You are the author of, I think, 11 or 12 books. I'll very 12. quickly list them. 12? Yeah. Are we 12. at 12? Okay. 
The physics of climate change, the greatest story ever told so far, a universe from nothing, quantum man hiding in the mirror, atom beyond Star Trek, the physics of Star Trek, quintessence, fear of physics, and the fifth essence, your latest book, which will drop in early May of this year, is The Edge of Knowledge. Uh, incidentally, there you go. I, I haven't received my physical copy yet. I've received the e-copy, but not e the physical one. Oh, you got the e-copy. That's great. I haven't received the e-copy. I mean, I know I, I haven't received it yet. No, so I think you may have sent it to me uh, where you might have even said something like, please don't share it with someone. I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. I sent you. I sent you a PDF. That's right. Yeah, yeah, not yeah, the Kindle version. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, just for our guests who care about such things, you may be, if I, unless I got my count wrong, the fourth physicist on my show. Uh, I had Lee Smolin. I'm sure mm -hmm. you know who that is. I, I was know interested. Lee. We, should, we were office mates at Yale a long, long time ago. Well, I'm interested in his cosmological natural selection uh, theory. Yeah, we'll talk, talk about, about that if you want. But... Brian Keating, uh, who's also been on my show and I've been on his, and Alessandro. at Case when I was chair. But anyway, that's is that true? Okay. Mm -hmm. Who? Brian was? Not Lee. Brian was, Brian. Yeah. yeah, okay. And then Alessandro Strumia, who faced some difficulties, and I invited him on my show to offer him a defense. And of course, there was the Particle for Justice people, which we could talk yeah, about sure. if you'd like. Okay, so, so much. By the discuss. way, just to be clear, I keep interrupting you, but that's what I do. I think I've been on this show before, so I may have been the first or second. I, we've done this once before a whole bunch of years ago. I think around the time I was going to Montreal to give a public lecture of some sort, I know I've been sitting with you at the microphone. You can look back. Maybe you, maybe you excised it from your memory, or maybe it never appeared. <laughs> I do remember that we met at a event where, where the president of Mexico was at, and we yeah. were both plenary speakers. And we, I think we might have sat at the same table, and we just chatted for maybe five minutes. Uh, but yeah, I'll go back and check. Yeah, I, I, re I remember the background right behind you. And all of that. So, so although it's a long forgotten podcast, but maybe it'll be resurrected somewhere. Anyway. All right. So I'm going to start with the first line of your foreword, which I loved. Uh, I haven't, I have to, uh, I have to admit that I haven't read it yet, but I kind of quickly went through. Some yeah, of sure. It. I understand. You just yeah. got it. It's okay. Three of the most important words in science are quote, I don't know. Therein lies the beginning of enlightenment because not knowing implies a universe of opportunities, the possibility of discovery and of surprise. My goodness, Dr. Kra uh, Dr. Kra you're, you're arguing that epistemic humility is something that scientists should have. That can't <laughs> be right. You must have been mistaken. Well, when I was growing up, you were allowed to ask questions and um, and you were encouraged to uh, explore. It was a quaint notion and it seemed to work well for about 500 years in the scientific method. And uh, and we got pretty far with that. And uh, and both you and I share, as I know, a concern about the fact that uh, that 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 open inquiry and the fact that you actually are not only free to say, I don't know, but encouraged to recognize that you don't know all the details, that things remain to be worked out. That in fact, as I like to say, uh, and it's, it's true that science can never prove anything to be true. It can only prove things to be false. Right. It can, you know, you, 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 if something doesn't agree with experiment, it's not false, but you don't know if the next experiment around the corner is going to cause you to refine your theories. And, but, but I think, you know, I just wrote a piece. I don't know if it's going to appear anywhere based on that i don't know because i really think that is perhaps one of the greatest legacies of science that's missing in society if we look at from the right and the left the people that are convinced uh, of almost everything whether it's there there is no such thing as sex or there are two sexes or 
or there is no such thing as climate change or it's going to destroy the world. Everyone is certain of whatever they're saying and uh, or and, and with vaccines, too. And the whole point of science is to that, you, you know, you, you don't you have to, you know what you know, you know what survived the test of experiment, but the rest is open. And that's what gives it. That's what makes it exciting. That's why young people. That's why I went into science at the end of the book, which you probably haven't gotten to. I, I point out that it was only when I, you know, I was always interested in science. But was I, I read a book by Richard Feynman uh, when I was in high school. A teacher saw me being bored, in fact, and gave me this book, The Character of Physical Law. And it was only then that I kind of realized that it wasn't already all done, that it wasn't all done 200 years ago by dead white men or whatever, and, uh, and that there were open questions. And to me, that was the invitation to discover. And, and as I said at the end of my book, I hope, I, I don't presume, but I hope that some young person We'll pick up this book and, and, and be so inspired. It was an invitation to join the join the club and 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 try and 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 answer some of those outstanding questions. Do you so there's the old Delphic maxim from the ancient Greeks, you know, know thyself, right? And yeah. so let me link it to epistemic humility. So one of the reasons why uh you know people often ask me, how you know, you're probably the most outspoken academic you you know that, that there is out there. How come you don't get canceled? And I mean, there are several reasons, I think, for that, knock on wood. But yeah. I think one of the reasons is that I, I'm very, I think, if I can speak of myself, I'm well calibrated about what I know and what I don't know. So that when I know something, good luck to you if you wish to debate me, because I'm going yeah. to walk with the swagger of someone who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. On the other hand, there is a million things that I know very little, if anything, about. So that if you ask me a question about that, I'm sufficiently well modulated. That I say, hey, Lawrence, that's a great question. I have no idea how to answer that. And because of that, I'm able to never get into trouble because I can usually defend very well my positions. Do you? Th why do so many academics lack that quality, if I can put it that way? Well, I, I think, first of all, it's not just that. It's great to diffuse people. Um, you know, it, it, when, when you admit you don't know something, suddenly people's defenses and their armor get drops in fact and they trust you they trust and they you trust you you know I'll, I'll, as a brief aside i'll never forget i i one of the things we tr always tried to do when i was chair of a department as a professor was getting our graduate students talking so they could give talks and get used to it but when i did my phd there wasn't really that opportunity at mit and i got and i and i got this job which at the time was the dream job it was the most prestigious job in the united states called the harvard society of fellows and and I went, I was in Cambridge, and I've been in Cambridge for, you know, five years up to that point, and no one knew who I was, and suddenly everyone knew who I was, but because I was suddenly had this job, and I really hadn't done anything, but I got invited to Princeton to give a talk, and I was terrified. I mean, because the, there were some people who are now my friends who were famous for tearing people apart when they gave seminars, and and I went in at, at, at the talk, and I said, well, I want to talk about this stuff. It's very tentative, and I'd really like feedback because I'd really – and no one asked any questions. And afterwards, I spoke to David Gross, who's a Nobel Prize-winning physicist and a friend of mine, but was famous for tearing people apart. And I said, what happened? He said, well, once he told us he wanted input, we all just shut up. <laughs> but but I, think, I think people are insecure. I, I, and, I, I, you know, they're the ones who I think are afraid to say they don't know. And and I find that more in, in sort of high school teachers and grade school teachers who are who feel like who want to stick to the curriculum because they know the curriculum. And, and of course, that's the last thing you want to do with kids. But I think um, also, I think sometimes once you get credentials and people start asking you questions, you start answering and you and again, Feynman talked about this one after he won the Nobel Prize. And, you know, and so I'm I've been well known over the years and people start asking you questions about everything yeah, yeah and you yeah. want to please them 
And at some point you want to respond and, and say, you know, uh, uh, you, you know, just give them something. Journalists all the time. And, and, you know, and in fact, journalists always want scientists to say things with certainty. And you say, you know, well, that's tentative and they don't like to hear that. That's so right. I think there's a lot of external pressure yeah. more on, on people. And you have to be pretty self-confident as you are undoubtedly to, uh, to admit you don't know. But it certainly diffuses. And I think that's my point. I think a lot of the hatred and anger and that's going on right now in the in the, in popular culture and the culture wars really could be diffused if both sides would just say okay we don't know everything maybe maybe you have something to say that i could learn from and uh, right. and in fact that was the as as you know the point of john stuart mill which i first learned from i will say from christopher hitchens but it's john stuart mill who said the real point of free speech is not the freedom of the speaker to speak but your your freedom to learn that you might be wrong and right, and exactly i think right. that's the uh that's what's and, and you know scientists love being wrong right because I, that's the other aspect it, it's a good training uh to because you know if you if you're wrong it means there's something exciting if we if if the standard model of particle physics all of us you know what's frustrating is it's is it's too damn right every da darn experiment that's going on is you know keeps being agreeing with it and we're all looking for something that says no there's something there's some chink in the armor yeah because no, it's the way to go forward uh, uh to, to your point about you going to Princeton and you mentioned Feynman I remember in his book uh, surely you must be joking Mr Feynman he mm -hmm. tells the story of when he first went to Princeton to speak in front of all these illustrious guys many of whom were quite rough with speakers Einstein in particular he it, was it, but apparently if 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 I if I'm remembering my story right and if you know the story maybe you'll correct me if I'm wrong I think Einstein's who hadn't said much during the talk uh, there was someone who was badgering Feynman, some famous yes. other physicist. And he kind of, in a very gentle voice said, don't you think, you know, we owe the young man the chance to finish his speech before we, <laughs> do, do you remember that? And I thought, yeah. I thought, you know well, what, I, I, I love Einstein even more than I did before after that kind well, of. Well, that was nice for Einstein. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. I, I, you didn't, you probably know this, but my book Quantum Man is the, is the, is the, is a scientific biography of Richard Feynman, uh, uh, perhaps the only one. Yeah, did you and, did you ever had he passed away before? I mean, I'm trying. No, to no, I got I got to know him. In fact, I first met him in Canada, in in Vancouver. When and and uh, there was a I was as I said, I grew up in Canada. I went to school and and did my undergraduate degree in Canada. Eventually, I was president of something called the Canadian Undergraduate Physics Association. Mm. The year before, I was vice president, and and Feynman had come up to give a talk to the Undergraduate Physics Association in Vancouver, and and. Uh, and the primary reason, and I know it's politically incorrect to say it now, but the primary reason was that the president of it was a very attractive woman who went down to, you know, Feynman probably ignored most requests. He got many. She went down to Caltech and just showed up at his office and asked him if he would lecture, and he agreed to go out. So so he, he ended up spending much of the weekend. We ended up spending much of the weekend together because of... Uh, Partly because I, I, my, I, at the time I brought my girlfriend and, 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 and he, and he, and was one of the reasons he, he hung around with me, I think. Well, but, yeah. So, and then later on, I like, I talk about the story in, in one of my books. Uh, I lect, when I was at Harvard, I lectured at Caltech many times and Feynman was in the audience, which was terrifying, by the way. Um, <laughs> and Feynman asked one question in public and then, and then after it was over, he, he came up and he wanted to ask me some more questions. So I, I was dying to remind him that the last time I'd met him, I'd been this lowly undergraduate and I'd people, he wouldn't remember. And this pesky, obnoxious junior faculty member would not stop asking questions. And Feynman eventually gave up and left. And I thought, oh, it's okay. Next time I'll, 
I'll, I'll talk to him and Feynman died shortly afterwards. So, oh, no. so, so I, I, it's, it's a regret that I have, but, and that's why that book was kind of a labor of love in a way. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things that uh, I, I love about Feynman, but other famous uh, academics, and I, I discussed this briefly in my forthcoming book, I have a book on, you know, the good life and happiness and so on. And oh, I have good. a whole chapter that might resonate with you uh, called uh, life as a playground. So it's a, kind of to have a playful mindset, to be joyful, sure. not to take yourself too seriously. And I sure. argue that even in under very serious circumstances, right? In the Holocaust, people were still finding a, a, play, a way to play. Uh, uh, when I was in the Lebanese civil war, I still needed to instantiate my desire to play mm -hmm. as a young child. Well, science itself could be the ultimate form of play, play right? Oh, it, it is the ultimate form of play. In fact, for me, I, I don't know if I've written about it. I think I may. There was kind of a apocryphal moment when I was when I was a graduate student. I was having a hard time, as many graduate students do, and I really wasn't enjoying what I was doing. And um, and at some point, uh, uh, then a, now a friend and later collaborator, a good friend, Shelley Glashow, won the Nobel Prize in Physics, spent the term at, at MIT, although I was going back and forth between Harvard and MIT anyway. And at some point, I used to do mathematical physics, and at some point, he looked at me and he said, you know, there's a difference, but you got to know the difference between physics and formalism. And, 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 and then, so we started to talk, and that really got me interested in physics. And then when I moved to Harvard, it, Shelley was just constantly, he was like a child, he was constantly playing. And that meant many things, by the way. We'd be joking at the blackboard, but also he'd be yelling and yelling, you know, he'd say, you idiot, you're going to, and, and it was fine, and I'd say, you idiot, back. Nowadays, I'm sure you'd be you'd be confronted by your dean and, and removed for for saying that. But that kind of playfulness and willingness to joke and willingness to banter is 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 a, is a key part of science. And you know, it's also a part of science that people don't really appreciate. They think of Einstein as the prototypical scientist, someone working alone, you know, in the room at night discovering the secrets. Well, that's generally not the way science is done, including even theoretical physics. Is that the blackboard with people playing back and forth? Right. And it is. Uh, it is play and 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 most the reason almost all the scientists i know do what they do they don't have this pretentious idea that they're going to save the world or uncover necessarily the secrets of reality they do it because they enjoy it yeah that's right. basically it but i mean even be i mean beyond science as a form of play just having a playful mindset not always taking yourself yeah. seriously so yeah so I, I i hear two types of feedback regarding my own you know, personhood. Some mm -hmm. say, my God, it's so lovely how, you know, you, you play around, you joke, you know, you could be very serious professorial, but you could also be a joker. Others say, oh, that hurts your brand image. But yeah, right? yeah. And I, I so reject that because my, you know, I'm sufficiently secure in my personhood that I can be both professorial and a complete buffoon who could be funny and, and joking and not take myself seriously. But why is it, do you think that most academics need to always have this air of profundity about them? Well, because most academics are incredibly insecure and are terrified. Academics are generally cowards. It's a very safe area to be in. And if you keep your head low and no one bothers you, you can go through your whole life without without ever having to confront anything more or less uncomfortable in one way or another. And and I think uh, that, but you're right. I mean, I've always been a joker, as you know, or and, and people know. And, 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 um, and, and yeah, many times as a result, people wouldn't take me seriously. Unfortunately, again, I didn't worry about it. And when you re when you've done enough, and like Feynman was a joker, but everyone exactly. took Feynman seriously. So at some point, you're you're lucky enough that you can have that flexibility to joke. But but you know nowadays, I think most faculty are afraid of joking for the other reason that you and I are quite aware of is that jokes get you in trouble now.
Indeed, if, indeed. You know, and, and it's such a shame because, yeah, humor, when that it infuses my books, not because I, it's because it's the only way I can do stuff. If it's not, it, it's, you know, humor gets me through the day and, and, and it should get all of us through the day. You're absolutely right. It's the key to happiness. I want to, I want to drill down uh, the contents of your book in a second, but since, mm -hmm. since you were talking about different aspects of your career, you know, writing mm -hmm. books as a professor. Of the many different hats, popularizer of science, you know, a media person, writing trade books, academic books, professor, is there one that one hat that you uniquely prefer, and if so, why? No, no absolutely not. And I, I, you know, I often have thought to myself, you know, if I could just do one thing, you know, I see a lot of my colleagues who just, are, you know, tunnel vision and they're working regularly, and I just can't. To me, it's First of all, I do what I enjoy. And and also each thing for me is a seed. It's gonna lead places I don't know. It's happened in my physics career. It's happened in my writing career. It's taken me to places and do, do things I never would have imagined. So I like to let plant lots of seeds and see where they're gonna, which ones are gonna bloom and which ones aren't, because I don't know. Often something I think is really important turns out to be not important. And something I thought was not important turns out to be very important. And, uh, but also I think, you know, I'm easily distracted. Uh, but I, I the other thing is, I just don't know which of the things I do is more useful. And so it's comfortable for me to jump around. I, I enjoy at different times, I enjoy each of them. And I've been fortunate because I didn't plan a career like I have. I mean, I, I so I'm very fortunate to have had many different hats. But I also think I couldn't have functioned without them. I, I think you know, people say, does your popular writing get away in the way of your research when I was, you know, actually doing research? And and sure, at some level it does, but other times it's inspired it. And so right. I think it's, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, another friend and colleague and someone I revered, although he's passed away now, Steven Weinberg, who was a, yeah, sure. one of the greatest theoretical physicists of the last part of the last century. And he was a someone, a, a mentor and friend, and, and I took many courses from him too earlier on. But he used to... Um, he used to have the TV on when he did physics because he found the distraction um, helped him. Now, I can't do that. I couldn't do that. But I think being able to, to go away from one thing into another energizes me. And um, and uh, and also, I, I, when I was a kid, I never wanted to specialize. I don't know if you that way. I mean, I wanted to yeah. do lots of different things. In fact, another, I guess PEI is one of the secrets I'll unveil on this. But um I'm going back now to write a book that I began. I took a year off school when I was 19 in college and, and worked on a Canadian history book. And uh, and I'm going to go back now. I have, the, I have thousands of pages. I spent a year at the archives with restricted material that hadn't people seen. And I owe it to my teacher back then, but I'm going to, my next book is going to be a Canadian history book. So, Well, well I'm, what a great segue, because as you were saying about, oh, I love wearing different hats, I was going to segue into the fact that it, forgive me for plugging my forthcoming book mm -hmm. on happiness. I have a chapter on variety seeking, and I talk about many types of variety seeking, you know, sexual variety seeking, yeah. food variety seeking, yeah. and then, of course, of relevance to both of us as academics, yeah. intellectual variety seeking. And I argue that I am the ultimate, I'm, I mean, to a fault, because, you know, in academia, they want you to, mm -hmm. to stay in your lane, specialize yeah. in one thing, you know, and I've published in economics and consumer psychology and bibliometrics and medicine mm -hmm. and uh, politics. Because I don't care. I just want to go wherever I, oh, that's an interesting problem. Hey, let's work on it, Lawrence. And yeah, so yeah. now, so do you think that there could ever be a day? I mean, 
universities always state from this side of their mouth that they're all about interdisciplinarity, mm -hmm. but all of the reward mechanisms from this side of their mouth don't support interdisciplinarity. Yeah. Do you ever see these two you know, be, being uh, consistent with each other so that we can actually truly reward those who are broad thinkers? Yeah, well, look, first of all, I don't know about rewards, and but I, I also think it takes all types. It's a thousand flowers bloom or whatever you want to call it. So some people who work on one thing their whole life, that's exactly what they should be doing. And some of them spent 20 years doing it. I, I, I think that's a real thing. The real lesson is, is that there's no stereotype that, that of a scientist or an academic that's really appropriate. Some academics like you, and, 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 and I'm, I think in many ways that way, need to work on many different things. I love to, uh, you know, throughout my career, I've worked on many different areas of physics because, yeah, I get to learn something new. I come in and I make a hit and I leave. Now, there's some, and as you point out, there's some disadvantages because you make, you write what may be an important paper, but then, you know, people are writing for 10 years and then people, you know, you've left the field, but that's okay. I think, I think it's difficult for universities that are defined along 19th century disciplines yeah. to, to do that. And, and frankly, one of the reasons I moved, one of the arguments the president of ASU gave me, uh, the lip service he paid that made me move was he was creating a university that wasn't based on, on, on 19th century departments. So different fields were coming together. And I was at a school of earth and space exploration and also had physics, but there were other, there were schools that were bringing together different departments. And so it was an attempt to do it. In the end, of course, because disciplinarity is what ultimately produces reference letters and ultimately produces, uh, uh, you know, promotions, that, that it's very difficult to get around that. And again, in, in physics, uh, I, I, early on, I haven't had that problem for years, but early on, at very early, I decided I was a particle physicist, but I got interested in cosmology in the 1980, early 1980s because it seemed to be the like the area where we could learn things. Accelerators weren't coming up with new stuff necessarily, and the universe was an experiment. But the astronomers, you know, viewed me or as a physicist, and the physicists might be viewing me as an astronomer. And it was it, it's a little difficult if you if you're at that cross disciplinary border. Now, what happened is that cross disciplinary border became the exciting area, and that so that sort of disappeared. But it, it can be very difficult, and I don't know a solution. Um, except, you know, in, except the way you the way it used to be, and it's not so much anymore because there's so many rules and regulations. Especially, I've even learned in Canada more than, than in the states because things are unionized and all sorts of stuff. But but um, it used to be that people could get tenure who were both difficult to deal with and also may not have produced this stuff. There's a very famous, you mind if I tell you an anecdote about Dirac, who was one of the most uh, revered and one of the best, next to Einstein was one of the greatest physicists of that part of the cent of the 20th century, developed quantum mechanics and 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 has, as Feynman envied, had an equation named after him, the Dirac equation. But Dirac was a notably, uh, a laconic isn't even the right word. He, he never spoke. In fact, it turns out his father, when he was growing up, required him to speak in French at the at the dinner table and and so he he barely spoke at all but but and so he so at one point he he was a student and he'd been a student in in um in 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 Cambridge I think and 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 at and Rutherford I think was the was the um was his supervisor maybe not but Rutherford he went to the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen and and went there as a postdoc and um and 
Bohr wrote back to England. So what is this guy? Who did you, you know, this guy doesn't talk to anyone. He doesn't do it. He hasn't written anything. How did you, why did you force him on it? So, um, he, so uh, Rutherford told him a famous a joke, which I'll tell you, which I like. He said, the guy goes into a, uh, to buy a parrot and he's a parrot and he's a beautiful parrot there. And they say, how much is this parrot? He goes, oh, $500. And he looks in this corner and he sees this ragged parrot and really ugly. And he goes, how, how much is that? And it goes, oh, oh, that parrot, it's, you, you, no, it's $500,000. What? And he says, well, how many words does this parrot speak? This pretty one, he speaks 50, you know, how many how many words does that one speak? Well, he, he doesn't speak anything. And he goes, well, why are you charging so much for this one? And, and so little for that one. This one is pretty and it speaks and that one just sits there. And the guy goes, that one thinks. <laughs> and and that's what that's what he told him and, and it turned out Dirac was thinking and and so that's a long roundabout answer to your question but it, it was easier I think in the old days for people who were who were did things off the beaten path but somehow were brilliant and that and you could tell from talking to them every now and then or seeing what they did and they were able to 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 remain in the system it's harder now and, and I've been on both sides of that I was a department chair for 15 years almost. And I remember trying to recruit a few people who were very difficult to belong with. And I remember one, who, I, and he's now got it done very well elsewhere. But, you know, they come, you know what it's like. You, you have this visiting faculty member, they come in, they try to press everyone around them. And if they insult some people, they're not going to get the job. And and this that's exactly what he did. And and he, and he I tried to say, well, look, he, he may be a little, you know, a little idiosyncratic or, but, but but he's worth it, and but it's hard to convince because academics are largely herd-like in mentality. Oh yeah, oh, yes. I, ca- I call them the cowards. I call them the invertebrate castrati class. So yeah, go. yeah, it's a good one. It is, and then re- and look, they're good at what they do. But it is a very safe job that people who are often afraid of either controversy or living in the real world take. Yeah, and on my experience, and I and this isn't just recent. I've always recognized. I think that most academics are very timid, shy, and often the cowardly and, and and we're seeing you know we're seeing it now as there's various controversies i think most academics would just rather keep their and i understand it keep your head below the radar and just do what you're interested in and that's what they w- want to do so do you think uh, so before i, I want to build on what you just said but just to to finish off on interdisciplinarity one of the concepts that i love the most which i'm sure you're familiar with uh, is the concept that E.O. Wilson kind of reintroduced into the lexicon in the late 90s, consilience, right? And yeah, I, yeah. I use that concept throughout all of my work, right? Yeah, the idea yeah. being that you can't have consilience in the behavioral sciences without using evolutionary theory as the organizing framework. And so yeah. it's almost impossible to be interdisciplinarian without having a synthetic mind that seeks to, to draw links between disparate areas. Is this something that we can teach our graduate students, or is it that you're either born a synthetic thinker or you're not? Well, you know, it's hard to know. I'm, I have, as, as someone who taught for 40 years, I'm very wary of teaching. I often, I've often wondered if I've ever really taught. I motivate, and I think people teach themselves to the large, or don't teach themselves, one or the other. I think we can encourage, by example, the usefulness with examples of people picking knowledge from one area and applying it to another or looking at problems outside their own area i think we can teach that by example but again i think it's largely a personality trait as well and i think uh uh i mean mean, that's to make another segue to books which is you know um i mean that's one of the reasons 
why I write books and the kind of books I've written, it's very easy to write the same book over and over again. And I have a lot of my colleagues, friends who have done that. But uh, I try each time I write a book to pick, you know, something I know something about, but something that will stretch me into an area I don't know, partly because it's a, there are two ways to learn things that you'd like to learn, at least I, ways that I know. Maybe people who are more disciplined can do it another way. Um, one is to teach it. Yeah. To choose to teach something that you don't really know very well. It's the only way you really learn it. But the other way for me is to write a book about it because, so, you know, I can be flippant and talk to you about this or that. But when you put it down on paper, you, at least for me, there's a whole different level of seriousness and you have to kind of understand it. And it's and it's and therefore it's a way for me to have been able to learn about, you know, other areas. This book, you know, it's got five parts, time, space, matter. But the last two are life and consciousness. And people may say, how dare you, physicist, um, you know, talk about that. And I actually have an excerpt from the life chapter coming out, which points out that actually origins of life issues were really first. Almost everyone significant in that field was a physicist at the beginning. Right. And, 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 and Schrodinger asked a, wrote a, a book called What is Life, which was an incredibly influential book. But I think the kind of questions you ask as a scientist should allow you to look at those things. And for me, the last chapter, which was consciousness, was the biggest challenge. It's something I wanted to learn more about, very suspicious of most things that were said about it. And, um, and, and I came away more suspicious, <laughs> in fact. But, uh, but it's, it gives you the discipline to say, well, look, if I'm going to write something that's going to be in print, I better at least kind of understand it. And that's also, I don't know if you found this also, it's also true when I've been writing about physics. There are ideas that I thought I understood really well that when I wrote down in a popular book, not just the mathematics, but when I wrote down a popular book, I realized I didn't understand them. And, and, and it took a long time for me to do that. And, and almost every book I write, even if, the, you know, even the physics parts of this book, cause me to force myself to understand something in a new way or more detailed or learn something that I didn't know before. So the way, and, the, sorry, mm -hmm. finish your No, point. I mean, I just gonna say the one thing we really need to do, I'm not sure is teach people to be, you know, interdisciplinary as much as to be lifelong learners. I think that's the main point. Indeed. Uh, so, I mean, you set up the, the, the topic for the, for your latest mm -hmm. book really mm -hmm. nicely. You've got five key concepts time, space, matter, life, consciousness, as you said. And at the start of each of these chapters, you have, I don't know, four or five questions that you tackle. What was the process for you generating first the five key? Why is it five, not six, not four? And then how did you generate each of the questions within each of those five topics? That's a really good, that's, that's a great question. And the Thank answer you. is, I mean, I knew I was going to write a book about what we knew we didn't know. And in fact, the book in in England, it's called the known unknowns, and it, which is which comes from a quote from Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, and my right. American publishers decided that that would be too alienating <laughs> if I had a quote from Donald Rumsfeld, even though it's one of it's a great quote, and I'm not a fan of Donald Rumsfeld in many anyway. But it's but you know he said something really intelligent, and so you got to give it to. Him. But so it was I, during I, a press conference, right during the yeah, one of the yeah press conference talking about the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and which I was an opponent of and still am, but um. I wanted, I knew, I, I tried to ask myself, what are the key outstanding mysteries that I know about as a scientist and, or things that I'd like to know about? And then I, I and then, you know, time, space, and matter really define the physical universe for, for, for us. And then, and then it was really a matter of thinking about what are the things, and I had to sit down and spend a lot of time. What are the key questions that people may have, not just scientists, but the public? 
and and how do they relate to things at the forefront of science? Because you know, it's like when I wrote a book called The Physics of Star Trek. That was a hook, right? I mean, Star Trek's fun, and I enjoyed it, and it was a great opportunity. To, but it was really a hook to get people to learn about the real universe, because right. the real universe is more interesting than Star Trek. Universe. So the question, what I really want to do is bring people up to date to the forefront of science. It's not just about, hey, we don't know this, we don't know that. It's a hook to try and say, well, you really can't understand what we don't, what we don't understand until you get some sense of what we do. Right. And so I, I tried to think of questions that would naturally allow me to go to those areas where I knew forefront science was at a precipice, right. where, where, where I go to meetings and people disagree because they don't understand, or there are questions we've known for a long time that we don't understand, like the what's the energy of empty space. So really, I tried to think of questions that were not just ones that would resonate with the public, which is important because you got to get people to pick it up and say, "Gee, I've asked that question." Sure. But also ones that have a strong relationship to to what's really going on in the field. So it was that balance that I tried to mention. Very interesting. Uh, about a month, no, about two months ago, we were uh, uh, vacationing in Florida. Uh, my children, my wife, and I. Uh, mm -hmm. They're young, my my children, uh, fourteen and uh, eleven, That's and at one easy. point, what say again? I discovered since I moved back here, everyone goes to Florida in the in the winter. <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, so uh, we we were, we got into this really beautiful philosophical conversation about what exactly kind of the general topic of your of your book, what, what is knowable, what is not. And at one point, my eleven year old son asked, "Well, you know, will we ever have the capacity to know what what was at?" starting point you know mm. the start of the universe and so then i started explaining well you know some of the things that we now know let's say in physics or in astrophysics stem from revolution methodological revolutions right more powerful mm. telescope yeah. that allows us to see more and then so i'm giving that as a background and as i was preparing for our chat i thought well you know i i studied previously in my previous life mathematics and computer science pure mathematics mm -hmm. and so of course there you got girdles incompleteness theorem that that talks about what you know, what what can you prove what can't you prove in complexity theory in computer science you have you know uh np hard problems and np uh uh, uh what is the other one uh, np hard and np complete problems and so mm -hmm. on which again is a taxonomy of things that you could solve in polynomial sure. so is there a similar metric that we can use in physics that allows us to say based on these axioms this question can never be solved. No, no. And I think that's a really wonderful thing about physics and most of empirical sciences. You don't know till you try. And in fact, you know, I remember I was talking to Martin Reese about this because he, he's been interested in what's knowable. And people ask, are there limitations to what we'll ever know? And this book is not about that at all. It's not about what's not knowable. It's about what we know we don't know. And we may never know, mm. but but we don't know until we try there are problems that are hard and i'm sure will not be solved that i mentioned here this century there are the ones that we may solve tomorrow and and you know so i'm always amazed when people say science will never understand love say love right. and i always think about that and i say well in order for you to say that you must understand it because how do you know we'll never understand it if you don't understand and so it the the only way is to keep trying and 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 so far We've not come up against any brick wall. We come up against brick walls. We can go around them and, and, and solve the problem. So I see no evidence. People have asked me, look, we have brains, we have mathematics, but we have a certain number of neurons. We have, you know, are there fundamental limitations in what we can know about nature? And I think the answer is, again, not known. 
and and uh and i think the only way to find out is to try because um because physics isn't axiomatic it's it, we, we get we move forward by, by by discoveries about nature that we hadn't expected that move so it's not as if if you locked einstein and dirac and whatever into a room without any access to what was going on in the world around them they wouldn't have come up with relativity or quantum mechanics they were driven to it by experiments right and and so it's different than mathematics in that sense. And therefore, I think we're only limited ultimately by what we can measure and our willingness to go out and look for new ways to explore the universe. And that's why I'm so uh, dismayed sometimes when people think that, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't build a new accelerator, we shouldn't build new telescopes because, you know, what does it have to do with a, a better toaster, faster car, or even solving poverty? And the, the, the first, I think if we are that impoverished as a society that we can't ask these fundamental questions, then it's real impoverishment. And, you know, and if it took the, if it took a significant fraction of the gross national product to answer any of these questions, I'd say, yeah, let's think about it. But even, even look, even the superconducting super collider, which was a big accelerator we were building in Texas, which would have preceded the large Hadron collider and done more and much earlier, was was canceled because it cost at that point about four billion dollars and was going to cost about ten billion dollars and there were a lot of political reasons for canceling it but let's face it it was going to cost about ten billion dollars over 10 to 20 years okay and you know ten billion dollars used to seem like a lot of money right but now it's it's but even then even that a billion dollars a year that's the price of an aircraft carrier or something like it and so it's it's uh it's not an economic question but it's also, I think, again, it comes to what, you know, you do something, your, your area is, is, is applied and useful. What I do, you, you could say, isn't useful in that sense. And I'm proud of it. No, but I'm proud of it because, because, you know, people say, well, what use is it to understand the first moments of the universe or whether the universe is infinite or whether you go back in time or whatever, maybe people are interested in that for the stock market or some other reason, but, but, um, and, 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 I, and I always say, well, you know, it, it amazes me. Science has the unfortunate characteristic that it also produces remarkable technology. And I don't mean it, I mean that facetiously, of course, because, but people equate science to technology. So unless you're actually building something better, you forget that what's amazing about science and the best thing about science is the ideas, is the change of our picture of our place in the cosmos. And I always say, people never ask, what's the use of a Mozart symphony or Picasso painting they don't because it doesn't have technology associated with it but it does exactly the same thing it changes our picture of ourselves and our appreciation of who we are and where we and our place in the world and we should never stop asking these questions because that culturally is what keeps culture worth sustaining but but incidentally although I I appreciate your kind words about you know being in an applied field and, and I think that's great I am an epistemological purist in that I recognize, I mean, right, I come from pure mathematics. Right yeah, now. sure, sure. Right now, now, you know, Fermat's, uh, many of his theories sat collecting dust for hundreds of years and only found an application 300 sure. plus years later when you, now with the advent of cryptography. So it's very dangerous to use to the criterion of, you know, is there a direct application? How about you just do it to elevate the human spirit and then we'll worry about the rest. Yeah, and, and that's the point. And so I never, I'm not saying that nothing I do will ever have an application. I'll bet you, I'll bet you a lot of money that it probably won't, but who knows? But that's not the reason I do it. 
And that's not the reason to do it, as you point out. I think, and you're absolutely right, you never know. You never know not only where a good idea is going to come from, but where an application is going to come from. And, and so we owe it, if we're interested in applications, if we're interested in improving the human condition, and that includes technologically, food, wealth, safety, all the rest, we owe it to ourselves to explore everything. Right. I, I remember once, I think we were testifying before Congress, and there was a big effort, and it was someone who was the head of a major, it was a national, I think it was a National Academy study, but, um, and he was the head of a major, uh, actually, military industrial complex thing. But anyway, he ran this study, and, and it was, I think it was called the Rising Tide or something, but ultimately, it demonstrated that 50% of the gross national product of the United States was based on curiosity-driven fundamental research a decade, or not a decade, a generation earlier. If wow. we wanted to build faster computers in, in the 1940s, we would have had wheels and, and, you know, and, and, and you know, better, better, faster wheels and gadgets. But then, you know, they invented the transistor and that changed it. It's, it's all always been that way. You've, curiosity-driven research is useful because it enhances the condition, but ultimately it's useful because it produces the, the things that are going to drive the wealth and health of a society a generation down the road. Yeah, beautiful. Of all of the questions that you pose in your five sections, if we were to take all those questions, submit them to 10,000 people to rate them on their interest score, whatever metric, you know, which one do you think is the one that generates the greatest amount of, you know, excitement, curiosity from people, even though we haven't done that experiment? Can you can you venture? Well, I think there are a few areas and I can judge it from some of the writing I've done. Time itself is something that people are fascinated by. And the idea of time travel, I mean, people, the notion, we all recognize this tragic, what seems like a tragic inevitability that we move forward in time until the day of our death, you know, and that seems, we, we confront that in many ways on a daily basis, but certainly throughout our lives. And the notion of time as this inexorable thing that moves forward is something that I think both depresses people and excites them in a different way. So time travel, whether whether we can go back in time, is, is always, and certainly in science fiction, which I've written about, it's always the most interesting topic. But another topic I ultimately think, which is which really resonates with people, and that's one of the reasons why I included the chapter in life, is not only what is the origin of life on Earth, yeah. but the question we all ultimately ask, which is, are we alone in the universe? I think everyone yes. asks that. And, 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 and the fact that we can even say anything about that now are making some progress, although I've written recently an article pointing out that some of it is, is overstated. Um, that is a question I think all of us, you know, you can't help but look at, out at the night sky and ask that question. And, and thankfully, we can still ask the question, because remember, uh, Giordano Bruno, uh, 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 um, in the, well, I forget whether it's the 15th century, asked that question, said all, all the stars are, are, are um, are, are like stars like our own and they have plants around them in civilization. He got burned at the stake for asking that question. I told later that he got burned at the stake because he was a pretty disagreeable character too. But, but, uh, but I think that question perhaps, well, that question, questions about time. And of course, everyone wants to know about the universe. How did it begin? Is it infinite? Those kind of questions, which I put in there, are big questions, but I think our origins are another. And the last one, the reason consciousness is there, not just because it's probably the biggest mystery outstanding in science in many ways, but because we all wonder, 
we all want to get in someone else's mind. Well, when I wonder when, you know, I'm colorblind, but I still see red every now and then. When you see red, is it the same? And, and you know, and when my dog looks at me, I have two dogs sitting here right with me right now. And, you know, and when they look I at I heard me, their feet earlier. Yeah, the feet, one of them is a little, yeah, she's old. She's been wandering around. I was going to let her out because I thought you might hear. Her. But, you know, when I look in their eyes, what are they, are they thinking? So this notion that we are trapped in our own consciousness is tragic and exciting at the same time. And I think all of us would like to understand who is the me behind me. Right. Maybe you write about it more in, in your in recent stuff. So those are a series of questions. And, and, and one of the reasons I've equivocated somewhat in my answer to you is everyone always asks me on so many different topics, what, what's the most X or what's your favorite Y? And it just psychologically, I don't think that way. I don't think hierarchically. Lots of things interest me and there and and I and I try not to I mean and, and they can all be really equally interesting and I don't I, I often don't think of which is more interesting but but based on my experience and I've spent a lot of time with the public as you know I think the the physics question of time is perhaps one of the the most important the biological question of are we alone and 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 what does it mean to be me are the other are the other two I think no I got you do you think that there is something uh that, I mean, not that makes physics impenetrable, but the fact that so much of our folk physics knowledge, you know, breaks down when you, you know, you incorporate, no. you know, uh, theories that even, I mean, I mean, I think I'm more educated than most people. And whenever I watch one of those popular science uh, physics <laughs> shows, I'm like, this sounds like a lot of bullshit to me, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I mean, and I'm not like the dumbest guy in the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so- could could it be that part of the reason why physics has a, a unique mystique and allure is precisely because our folk psychology fails us so often when we think about these grand issues? Part of it is that I think part of it has been manufactured by the physics community. To tell you the truth, the 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 well, partly for fundraising. I mean, there's a there's a historical and sociological arguments that you know the big science, which was created with the Manhattan Project didn't exist before right and it used to be nothing special about scientists but suddenly they're the secret to the atomic bomb and it elevated them to a priesthood that was kind of uh different and preserving that priesthood is something that i think was attract is is kind of attractive hey we know something you could never understand is is attractive at some level i think it's but it is it the other aspect is that it's been just so darn successful Right. So that the questions that physicists asked when Newton was asking those questions, or even when Maxwell and Faraday were developing the laws of electromagnetism, were, it, were directly related to human experience. But as physics became so successful, the key questions moved away from human experience and became farther and farther and farther from human experience. And that's, that's, a, that's wonderful because it means we're understanding the universe on scales that we never imagined we'd understand and, and how amazing is it that we can understand that go back to the first second of the universe when we've never even left our solar system. But at the same time, the negative feature is that those questions have become so far removed from what anyone is used to that even physicists have a hard time conceptualizing those questions. Right. And quantum mechanics, and I spend a fair amount of time in one of the chapters talking about quantum mechanics. I think there's so much garbage written about it. Part, part, my, I know people, and I won't mention names, who write books on, on quantum mechanics, many worlds, because it, it sounds good and it makes it sounds awe-inspiring. But in fact, 
I, th I think it's, uh, as I point out in the book, and I learned it from a much smarter man than me, a, a colleague of mine named Sidney Coleman, who was at Harvard. You know, it's the wrong way to think about it. People talk about the interpretation of quantum mechanics with all these weird things. And as he pointed out, we should be talking about the interpretation of classical mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the real world. Classical mechanics is this imaginary overlayer. And of course, whenever you try and under explain the fundamental world in terms of some kludge, you're going to come up with things that sound crazy, like many worlds and all the rest of stuff. But that just sounds good. But but the real world quantum world is 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 strange and indeed. But and we can't intuit it because we're not we are classical beings. And so I think the fact that even scientists, our 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 intuition, generally breaks down until we work very hard in these areas means that we just, as they say, just trust the mathematics because the mathematics works. Well, actually, so anyway, I, I think that we're victims of our own success in that sense in physics. And that's why biology is more immediate. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll segue to something else. I, me and a, and a physicist, a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Leon Letterman, who was a wonderful joker, by the way. Um, he worked very hard in Chicago and we've worked other places to try and change the way we teach science in high school. We tend to teach biology first, then chemistry, and then physics. And that's exactly the wrong way. But the reason is that biology seems more accessible, you know, frogs and that sort of thing. But of course, that means you have to take things on faith in biology. You take things on faith that chemistry would explain to you. Right. You take chemistry and you don't know what energy is. So ultimately the logical way to do it is take physics and then, which is the basis of chemistry, which is the basis of biology. But the problem is that physics essentially being more mathematical is more remote. So, so we have that problem in teaching and it's, and, you know, it's a really unfortunate thing because kids think of science as things you take on faith or memorize instead of figuring it out. And that's that's a real misconception about science. Well, so we, we I want to speak to that point in a second by bringing in Auguste Comte and his hierarchy of sciences in a okay. second. But before I do that, uh, to your point about, you know, studying things at the cosmological level, yeah. Richard Dawkins, as you know, and I saw that earlier you, you retweeted him because you had said something nicely about your latest book. Yeah. Uh, talks about middle world, right? The idea that our brains have evolved to study things at the scale that our brain interacts with the world in, right? Mm -hmm. So things at the nano level, our, our folk psychology breaks down. Things at the cosmological level, our folk psychology breaks down. Middle world is where we we navigate. Yeah, and in fact, if you I, you know if you if you ever see them, they made a movie. Richard and I have done a lot of lectures around the world, as you probably know, and, and they made a movie about it called The Unbelievers. And I remember the Sydney Opera House we were talking and he was saying, it's amazing. I mean, people ask this question, you know, did what on earth, how did evolution get people who could explain, understand quantum mechanics? So what evolutionary imperative is there to do it? And not, clearly there isn't. There is an evolutionary imperative to understand the middle world as you're talking about because it helps you survive. But some unintended consequence is, and he said, it's, it's amazing that any, you know, and that we understand quantum mechanics, or at least that anyone does, or relativity, or even time, even long time. The big problem of, of, of evolution is none of us can appreciate a, a, a 10,000 generations, much less 100 generations. And so to see the slowness of evolution is so non-intuitive. It is an amazing accident of evolution and intelligence that this byproduct of intelligence and uh, came out. And we may, and it may, it may be in the far future, if there are historians around, or maybe aliens from another planet who who come to see the remains of, of, 
what existed on our planet once. They may say, well, that evolution, you know, that was a, a, an evolutionary byproduct, but it was a maladaptation. It's right. a pity that they, they got it because it meant... In, in, well, you, in, you're really speaking world. my language now. Exaptation, adaptations, maladaptation. <laughs> you're right up yeah. in my wheelhouse. Uh, okay, yeah. let, let me link it to Auguste Comte. So Auguste Comte, for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, argue that there's a hierarchy of sciences. And mm. as you move up, you get to sociology at the top of the hierarchy now I mean, he was by bottom but anyway <laughs> no, but but to his point i think i mean one of the points that he was making is that yeah. it's quote a lot easier to stop i mean he didn't I, i'm using my words now not yeah. his you know to study the uh the uh, molecular structure of a particular you know whatever it seems to be more deterministic than to try to understand if let's say you know i study evolutionary psychology and consumer yeah. psychology to study the most difficult the most complex organ in the universe known as the human brain and yeah. now let me try to find a way to either uh, through psychology or biology or mathematical modeling to model consumer choice it epistemologically seems a lot more difficult to do oh, it is so so in that sense i think his hierarchy makes sense what are your oh, thoughts it does and I, I often say this and i think i've said on stage with richard or with other biologists and people think i'm joking because they laugh and i say i just do i do physics because it's easy i mean i don't you know the, the psych, it, it, neurobiology is hard and psychology is hard and 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 sociology is hard and, and in the sense that it you know it's yeah. it, and it's made much less progress because it's so much harder physics you have systems that you can isolate and study. And of course, everyone thinks physics is impenetrably hard and it, mathematically it's demanding. And, and, into, and, and as you say, conceptually, because we're so far removed from everyday experience, it's demanding. But as a science, in some ways, it's so much easier. And that's why it's been so, so much successful. If, if, if the other fields were as easy, we'd be as far into our understanding of, of consciousness as we are to our understanding of the nature of fundamental particles. And I think to the credit of the natural sciences and less so to the nat uh, social sciences, I'm bringing back now the concept of consilience. There, there aren't chemists who are pro-periodic table and chemists who are anti-periodic table. So you can have core knowledge that we can tick off as, as it's set. Now, of course, with the epistemic humility that everything is provisionally true, but- sure. Right. So we can all agree that gravity exists. And here are some fundamental truths about gravity. Whereas in the social sciences, the bifurcation of our disagreement could start at the most basic point. Does biology matter in explaining human behavior? A bunch of people say yes. A lot more people say no. And we're already off into different ecosystems of, of, of knowledge and we could never join again together. So that's really the secret, I think, of the success of the natural sciences you have organized frameworks of trees of knowledge where we could hang our hats on those trees of knowledge we don't have such a thing in social science yeah we we have the success of experiments and knowledge based on knowledge and i would say you know a lot of people think i'm an anti-philosophy because of jokes i've made um you know my book a universe from nothing i i argued at the beginning that that I knew theologians and philosophers would, would disagree with what I said because they're experts at nothing but um <laughs> and, and they took it seriously unfortunately but um anyway but but my point is and one of the reasons people think I'm anti-philosophy is that I make the true statement that philosophy isn't important in physics anymore I mean in the sense in the sense empirically and I'm not talking about some qualitative value judgment I think philosophy is fascinating and but the question is, is 
do physicists who are functioning as physicists, are they driven by questions that philosophers are asking? And they're not. Right. That's because the field has progressed so far. But they used to be. It used to be called natural philosophy for a reason. And I point out in, in my book, in the last chapter, that I think it's quite telling that when I talk about consciousness, I'm quoting and talking with about philosophers as much as I am neurobiologists. I'm talking about Dan Dennett and Patricia Churchland and other people, all sorts of people, Noam Chomsky in, in a sense. And, and, but, um, and I think that's telling. It, it's not a pejorative statement. It says that when you're in a nascent part of the part of science, philosophy is useful because what philosophy helps you do is critically frame questions. Yeah. And and then and get a start. And and in consciousness, we don't even have the good questions. We don't know what the good questions are. The difference is in physics, we know what the good questions are. Right. And we don't need the philosophers anymore. And there are philosophers of science who do interesting work, but they don't they're not read by the physicists. And as I like to say, most physicists can't spell philosophy. But um and but that that's not a that's not a value judgment. It's a fact, and and I think uh, and when you come to sociology and and more those, you know, I don't think of sociology as a science at this point. But but let's but let's say it's a, you know like to be it would be science. When you come to those areas, philosophy is as important as anything else because you don't yet know what the good questions are. For example, how do you ascertain whether biology is a central feature of of of, of you know of of, of consumer. Um, behavior yeah. voice you know and and that those kind of questions so i think uh, that's what you can see and and i really i make that statement again not pejoratively at the end that a lot of the good work uh, interesting work on the nature of consciousness is coming from philosophers because they're because they're, because we really don't even have a good definition of consciousness and philosophers are are trying to ask the questions that lead us to what a good definition is so your 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 sort of slightly pejorative statement about sociology is really relevant in terms of a segue because I'm going to try to defend I'm not a sociologist so I don't yeah. I don't have a dog in the fight but uh, I think sociology is failing as a science not because epistemologically it it isn't a science right it's because you, you could ask very important questions as a sociologist and then apply the tools of the scientific yeah. method in sure. exactly as rigorous a way as any other yeah. Quote scientists. The problem yeah. with sociology, which is going to lead us down the the woke, the wokeism stuff, yeah. is yeah. that there are some disciplines that are inherently more likely to be parasitized by bullshit, or what I call in the parasitic mind, idea pathogens. Right. Yeah. Whereas you would have thought until recently, although I warned against it, to, if I can say I told you so, you would have thought that the natural sciences have an inoculation against bullshit. But we're finding out that that. You know, physicists and chemists and biologists are just as prone to be parasitized by woke ideas as the rest of us. What are you? Well, thoughts? I'm not sure just as Joe, just as likely, but they are. Yes. And we, we're seeing, yeah, and I, I, I think I use, I don't know, I didn't in this book, but I know I've written somewhere that I, when I taught at Yale, um, science was on this thing called Science Hill, right. and and which was appropriate, it seemed. But it was also interesting because none of the, most of the L students never set foot on science hill until we forced them to take one science course but but um but we used to laugh because when i was at yale that was the heart of deconstructionism which is postmodernist. you know that's where the and we used to laugh and say look at these oh my god and of course look you know it's look where we are now yeah there but for the grace of god as they say but um uh and so i think you're right about that but i think that uh, part of my reaction by the way to sociology is 
I took a sociology course. My brother did a degree in sociology, and one of the first classes I took at university, I had to take a general course with sociology. And I and I was reading Durkheim and all, and and I became fascinated. I thought, hey, maybe I can use the tools of physics to I can I can, you know, and, and these can be directly applied. And I can be this great sociologist, and I because the words sound the same. And that's when I first learned. It took me a while that you have to be very careful with analogies. That that yeah, you can talk about entropy or this or that, but it's but if you push it beyond the domain of its validity, which a lot of people were doing in sociology, you can't treat a human system like you can a group of atoms in the same way. Yeah. And and the concepts may be enlightening, but but you've got to be really wary of pretending you're being more scientific than you are. And that of course is an invitation, not just a wokeism, but anything else. It's an invitation to to. Um, you know the 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 ridiculousness of the right, or, or you know the misuse of genetics uh, early on, and all of that. It's an invitation when you when you think you're being more scientific, you are. And how do we know that? Because you don't ask yourself questions, and you're not subjected to cre- critical thinking on other people. So you're it's taken for granted that what you're saying is true, which is the worst possible thing that can happen in any area, in my mind, of human activity. It's certainly an anathema to science, and it's. And it's the it's the source of dogma and religion, and and unfortunately secular religion, and in many ways now what you and I might call wokeism. And, and to our earlier point, when we were talking about the cowardice and the kind of the meekness of academics, it, it, I'm going to propose something, and then you, you you give me your thoughts. So I think one of the reasons why many of these woke idea pathogens have proliferated in academia is because is, is your dog okay? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my dog and let him out because it looks she looks like she might want to do something. Okay, go ahead and then I'll continue. Go ahead, go. Oh, yeah, come here, Tasha. No, Levi's okay. Oh, oh, sorry. This is uh, you might as well. She might as well be a star. She's oh, look at that. She's Sixteen, but sometimes I don't know what she's up to, so I'm gonna let her go. <laughs> First time ever on the sad truth of break for a dog. Uh... Yeah, dog with your Nancy. Nancy. Tom, bring Tasha down because she's she's going back and forth. Okay, should you take her out to hear me? Okay, really, but I want you. You might as well. Listen, you might as well be a star of this show. Okay, first time, two dog. Oh, look at that double dog appearance. Yeah, double dog. There you go. This is the this is the one I was sitting listening. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a huge dog person, so I'm happy to take a break for dogs. Yeah, me too. I'll, I'm, I much prefer dogs to people myself. So do I. So do I. Okay, well, I'm back. The dogs yeah. are out, and now, and now, yeah. I think the dogs didn't mind. My, no, Levi doesn't mind listening about physics, but he hates sociology, so he wants <laughs> So what I was saying is, do you, do you think that one of the reasons why many of these idea pathogens that were spawned on university campuses and then proliferated wildly all the way to the natural sciences precisely comes from the fact that academics are cowardly so that the the personhoods that would have been required to stand up and say wait a minute this is utter bullshit most academics don't have that capacity and so those bad ideas then end up spreading without any built-in resistance against them well you know i think i have to call you have to qualify that most scientists most academics but i'll say scientists because the people I, i interact with the most you go into work trying to prove your colleagues wrong, okay? Because that's how you get well-known, right? So the whole point of going in, that's why people talk about this, this club of scientists and evolutionists who somehow have this you know, secret handshake. If you could prove evolution was wrong, you'd love to do it because then right. you'd be famous. 
But so you are trying to, in some sense, critique others. But I think the I think it comes down to more uh, a fear of um, a, a fear of raising uh, of critiquing ideas that may not um, that may gain attention uh, that may gain you unwanted attention. Right. And I, so I think you want the attention of your colleagues in, in certain ways to to you know they want the attention on you and your ideas. But you don't want to say things that brings attention for people you want to you want to hide from or avoid from. And I think so. I think that in my mind, that's the that's the characteristic of most academics. I would say is that is 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 trying to um, avoid the parts of uh, the things they don't want to be to be subject to. And and you know, and it's real. And look, it is uh, it is terrifying. It it is not well. Maybe terrifying is an overstatement, but. When you for the if you're an academic and you're in your little niche and talk to people, that's fine. It is it is for many people terrifying to step outside that and suddenly being in an environment where you're a not kind of in control and 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 it's it's alien in many ways. And I think for most people, it's it's natural to not want to enter alien environments. That's all. But you know, I mean. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And, and to our yeah. earlier point, most professors yeah. are staying your lane specialists. Yeah. I get all that. But take, for example, let's draw an analogy with Elon Musk. I've okay. I've I've written uh, or or maybe done, done a, a sad truth clip where I said that of all the wonderful, great entrepreneurial things that Elon Musk has done, none of them will, historically speaking, you know, be as important as whether you like him or not, as his defense of freedom of speech. So all the other stuff is going to matter a lot less than that. So now let's let's analogize to academics. Academics, as you said, are very willing to have these debates within their small little esoteric ecosystems, but then on issues that are profoundly more important, frankly. So having these idea pathogens spreading across every single nook and cranny, whereby they're attacking our edifices of yeah. reason, where they're attacking whether men can menstruate or not, that, mm. that's a lot more serious of an issue to debate. So I lament the fact that otherwise intelligent, bright, trained people don't go into the these new ecosystems because that's where we want our intellectual navy seals to be weighing in but they're not navy seals because they're cowardly yeah but yeah i can see that i i, I can see that i think though that what what happens is that people are more willing it's it's it are more willing to dismiss to to dismiss something and and therefore dismiss sort of the idea of freedom of speech the less they know about it right and so so when you're an when you're an expert in area, you're you're open to almost any any kind of discussion. The less you know, the more foreign it seems, the more willing you are naturally to dismiss it. And I think, you know, I, I remember my institute that I ran, you know, ran a, a whole meeting on the origins of xenophobia, and and you know, and, and it, in groups versus out groups. And I think it's a it's an innate human. It's more. We talked about, you know, the immune system is a good example of kind of biological xenophobia, and it's useful. It's been extremely useful in an evolutionary sense, but maybe it's an evolutionary maladaptation because foreign things are suspicious and more easily dispensed with. And it's and 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 then you, when you don't know anything, it's easy to say, you know, biology doesn't say there's two sexes, or or men are not different than women, or vice versa. Or and so I think. I think what you're saying is right, but I, I, I think it's a natural predilection of, of academics who are experts in an area to have open minds in that area and closed minds in others. I think it's just a human property. Yeah, and no, I get you. The, okay. the hope of science is that, it, that if it can train you to be able to open your mind in one area, 
the hope is that 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 legacy will will train your mind to be open in another area. But one of the big secrets about scientists that we should reveal is that scientists are human beings, and and they suffer from the same. I think Paul Meal, the uh, the famous psychologist, in one of his autobiography biographical excerpts, said, uh, "Ethology rules academia," meaning that. That that academics are no different than all of the other primates in terms of territoriality yeah, and so sure. on. So we're exactly we're we're just smart primates. Uh, okay, you know what? You know the only uh, and uh, another person who's overrated, in my opinion, besides Donald Rumsfeld, is is, is Henry Kissinger. Um, another uh, person who I learned to despise during the Vietnam War. But but <laughs> but one of the things he said, which I learned wasn't his anyway, but I learned it from him. Was that academic disputes are so vicious because the stakes are so small? Yeah, yeah, I love that quote. I love that quote. But it's now, not his. He, he adapted it. I learned it. It came from someone else, and I forget who. Oh, is that it, right? Okay, because yeah, yeah, I usually yeah. as ascribe it to him. Uh, sure, he made yeah. it popular. Uh, well, I, I, since we're talking about famous uh, academics, and I know that you know him well, uh, I'll, in all fairness, I'll begin by saying that I'm no fan of his. Can you give me in a couple of sentences? Uh, what you love about Noam Chomsky? And I knew you were going to have the name Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, uh, well, Noam is one of the more remarkable people I've ever known, and 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 I say that some people I also disagree with profoundly. Um, but Noam has um, an ability to frame questions in a way that I few people can, and also an encyclopedic knowledge of things he remembers things that he's read and and um and of course besides the work in linguistics which i'm aware of but i don't appreciate as well as a as well as a uh, as a linguist would although i've tried to because i've done dialogues with Noam and tried to talk to him about various aspects of linguistics but i remember when it impressed me the so much when i first um it, the great thing about being a student at mit or at least doing your phd at mit was that there were no required courses and I took very few. It turns out all the courses I took were ended up being at Harvard. But the one course I did take was a course that Noam taught in American foreign policy. And um, and what amazed me was him boiling things down to simple questions, which whether or not you agree with him, uh, actually, there's some the, the premise of what his, where he comes from is something that I think you would he, would agree with, which is. This statement that the American foreign policy is any different than the foreign policy of any other country is suspect. One would suspect that the foreign policy of any country is governed by the self-interest, not only of the country, but the self-interest of those people who are running the country. And that, and, and, and if you make that presumption, your view of American foreign policy is very different than the myth that we all grew up with, with that somehow it's you know, where it's altruistic, it's meant to make the world free and everything else. And, 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 and we used to tell me two things, and one of them you, you love, one of them you might not love. One of them was that, um, you know, if you want to find out, you know, whether something you're hearing about in the press is reasonable, ask a four-year-old and say, you know, does this sound reasonable? And, but, but the other one he told me, which is if you really want to find out what's going on in the world, read the business journals. Yes. Because because you see, you can read all this nonsense in the newspapers, but in business, you have to know how the world really works if you want to if you want to make money. And so, if you read the business journals, they don't cut around with all this, you know, nice crap. They they'll tell you how it really is. And I think so. And but I I guess I was just so impressed with his ability as a scientist, but also 
to have such an encyclopedic knowledge and two other things, the, the courage, especially during the Vietnam War, the courage to speak out at a time when it makes you not only unpopular, but canceled. Right. And the second part, and I learned again as a student, uh, the, the reason I admired him as a human being and I tried to emulate is first of all, being able to say things that get you, you know, that, that, that you, you are true, even regardless of, of what, what the consequences are. The second thing was, I remember when he, when I went to talks before I knew him really, and he would give a talk and then he would spend, didn't matter if it was three or four hours afterwards, answering every single question of everyone, not just on mass, but the shy people who came up afterwards. And I, and I just thought that was such a wonderful thing to That's do. Nice. And he didn't leave until there were no more questions. And I, anyway, so I guess as a human being, I find him so impressive. Now I don't agree with everything he says, and, and um, but I also think like many people who speak out, he's often misinterpreted. Some people think of him as an enemy of Israel. And I don't, I mean, he was studied in Israel. He was, he, right. he's Jewish, you know, background. And he, and, and, and I don't think he's an enemy of Israel. I think he's, he's concerned about things that many people are concerned about now in Israel, uh, maybe not as much. So I think he tends to get misrepresented a lot, but he's also, like some people, I, it, we t- he tends to be dogmatic and, and, and things that he believes, he believes. And I think, you know, I'm not sure I agree with all of them. So anyway, that's my... Fair enough. That was a diplomatic My, my moment of honoring Noam Chomsky, who I'm happy to honor. And by the way, interestingly enough, yeah. what, impre- what I'm really thrilled about is that this may be actually, I think this is the first, interview, although it hasn't been about the book much, and I don't care. I'm not here to sell books. But, but um, although this is kind of the first interview about with it, that's about the book, one of the first public um, in, uh, sessions will be in, in England, but done remotely at a thing called the How To Academy. It's going to be a dialogue, and my interlocutor will be Noam Chomsky. So it'll be interesting. Oh, I look forward to seeing that. Okay, last two questions. Although, of course, I could keep you here for another five hours. Uh, so this is a question that's become sort of a a a a, a I mean a standard part of our ending my chats. I ask people because in the one of the last chapters of my forthcoming book, I talk about you know if you could live your life without look w- looking back with with few regrets, you win basically. And yeah. so I want to set up that question for you with the following intro. One of my uh, PhD uh, professors at uh, Cornell was uh, well, not was is uh, someone named Tom Gilovich who pioneered the study of psychology of regret, and he basically distinguished between two forms of regret regret due to action versus regret due to inaction regret due to action i regret that i cheated on my wife yeah. and now my marriage is dead i regret yeah. that i did that regret yeah. due to inaction you know i really should have gone into physics i decided to become a physician but really my love was physics i should have gone so now it turns out that over the long term uh, most of us the regrets that loom l- largest in our minds and hearts are regrets due to inaction yeah so with good. that said you're still a relatively young man with many years hopefully left in you uh, if you look back at your life would you be willing to share what would be your one or two greatest regrets and let's see if they fit with the theory well, by Thomas know, I try not to think it I, you're gonna force me to go to play because I try not I always try to look forward rather than backwards so I I uh 
I, I, I regret that I never asked that woman to marry me. I regret. No, I'll that tell I you, I, I regret. I regret that I never told. I never forced that uh, that stupid junior faculty member to shut up, and I could have had a last conversation with Richard Feynman. That's something I know I regret. <laughs> if that's your biggest regret, you've lived a very good and privileged life, Lawrence. No, I'm. I may probably. Have, I'm not sure it's a good, but probably privileged. But um, but but um, I um, I think. You know, you never know what would have happened. So I guess I don't find it. I, I guess I don't find it productive. It's really weird. Maybe it's a character flaw. There are things I wish I'd done, and there are things I've done that I wish I hadn't done. Um, reporters that I wish I hadn't talked to, and 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 you know, because I thought they were idiots, and and then you know, it comes back to bite you in the butt. Um, but I, I guess I know I'm going to disappoint you. I don't know what my greatest contributions to humanity are or will be, and I don't think it's up to me to say. And I, I just think there's a lot of things I could have regrets over, and some of them may have had a much more profound influence on my life than others. But the life I live is the life I, you know, I, I live it. And I, and I think, I think so. I don't know if someone once said having regrets is like being punished twice. But, um, but, um, yeah, there are lots of things I regret, but I try and get over them really quickly. And I'm sorry. I wish I could give you. I'm sure it's a regret of inaction. Yeah. Rather than action. I mean, I can tell you the actions I've made that have had se severe consequences, but I'm pretty certain it's the things, you, you know, that I didn't um, uh, do. And some of them I try and overcome. One of my big regrets is I never wrote that history book. So I'm well, you're what you're going to do now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but to, you, you mentioned what, you know, it's not for you to say what would be your biggest contribution. So allow me to to do that for you. I think that probably popularizing science to many, many people is arguably both of our greatest legacies. Yes, we might have written specific papers that had an impact and were cited 400 times in the journals. And that's great. And I'm not in any way being derogatory to that because that's that's part of academia. That's part of science. You have to publish in peer-reviewed journals. But I think, you know, inspiring, right? When I appear on Joe Rogan and 20 million people download it or whatever, yeah. watch it, and yeah. then they write to me and they say, I went and studied evolutionary psychology or psychology of decision-making or consumer psychology precisely because I was so inspired seeing you on, on Joe Rogan and I receive a, you know, a million of those. Uh, that probably, if there was a way to quantify our respective influences, if I can speak for both of us, that's probably our biggest contribution. Do, would you well, agree it, with that? Well, I, again, I don't do biggest, so I'm not. I, I think it's an important contribution. You know, I don't know whether the science contributions I make in the long run, in the long run, will impact in the field the most. What is satisfying? There, it is incredibly satisfying to me. To, and I'm, I am old enough. I'm not young. I'm going to be turning seventy next year. Wow, and, you look young. I know I look young, but I'm but I'm older than I look. But um, uh, and so uh, I have for many years now have had the situation where young where I meet not just young people, I meet scientists who say what you wrote or what you said, you know, made me want to be a scientist. And and, and it's a it's very satisfying. Yeah. And because I I'm and that's one of the reasons why I write. I've I've, re I've said this a lot. I'm returning the favor. I, I, I became a scientist because I read people like Feynman and Isaac Asimov and Albert Einstein and George Gamow and other people, and I'm returning the favor by doing that. So yeah, it's certainly, I, obviously I think it's worthwhile or I wouldn't be doing it. Right. But, but I, you know, and it's very flattering, yeah, you know, to get, be on some major TV program or be whatever and, 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 uh, and get a lot of 
attention and, and feedback and impact because of that or write a best-selling book or whatever. But um, but again, maybe because I also study history, I like to think I don't have the historical perspective to be able to judge. So it'll be for someone else to do, and I won't really care. Um, you'll, because you'll be gone. You'll be in another dimension. Well, not another dimension, but you know, then I'll talk. Then I, I'll I'll say what you know, my friend, and I'm happy to say he's my friend Woody Allen. Um, would say, which is, you know, I don't want to live for, on forever. I want to live on, you know, in your, I don't want to f live on forever in your hearts. I want to live on forever in my apartment, he's, he would say. But um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in his apartment. But but um, but those things I don't, I, I try not, to, yeah, we're all influenced. We all have, you know, vanity and all the rest of the stuff. But, sure. but I try to both think forward and try to not presume which of the things I'm doing is most significant. And that's what we said, going back to the beginning of our discussion, that's one of the reasons why I do many things. Because yeah. I'm convinced I don't know in the end what's going to be most useful. Okay, last question. Notwithstanding that your main focus is to now promote the edge of knowledge <laughs> and people go out, purchase it, May 9th, it drops, do it, put it up, put up your book, uh, Lawrence, so they go. can Here see it. it. There it Actually, is. I do think that I have, I will say one, one, I'm very pleased with this book. And I think, if you ask me what's the sort of best successor to the, the say universe from nothing which was a, a, a influential and, and best thing book, i do think this is it because it takes it takes us in the next year. so I, I i feel that way about this book but i have no presumptions about how it's going to do in order so other than this book which you'll be busy promoting yeah. over the next yeah. few months are there Maybe. any yeah. projects that you would like to share with us at this moment future projects? yeah sure i mean yeah and i, I don't know how much promotion i'm gonna do and, and you know by the way one of the things i really admire about woody allen which he taught me is when he finishes a movie, he not only never sees it again, he doesn't talk about it again. You know, he doesn't want to talk about it. He's never, first time I met him, I told him, you know, I'm a I was flying back from Australia and I, I'd seen Annie Hall on the plane again, which was a movie that had a huge influence on me. And he said, I've never, I've never seen that I made it. I do when I'm, by the time the movie appears, I'm working on the next project. Right, right. That idea of looking forward is something I admire tremendously. I don't have his kind of discipline, but I try and emulate it. But uh, but besides, you know, the book is done. So yeah, I'll talk about it and it'll be exciting. But I'm, you know, I'm obviously thinking about um, other things, including some of the writing I'm doing besides the new book that's coming out. Um, and and, and uh, some physics problems that are always in the back of my mind. But I'm, I'm excited about the um, uh, thinking about what we can do. I run it. One of the terrifying things to do for an academic is to leave academia and I, and when I retired, I, I did something I wanted to do for a long time, which is create a foundation. It's a nonprofit foundation to try and do the things that I thought was important to mix science and culture together. And we're all, and it's a challenge to run a foundation, especially a nonprofit. And, and so to try and think of ways to, that that can have a positive impact um, is, is, uh, is something that I'm spending a lot of time on. And we, you know, the podcasts I do is part of that. It's just one of the many things and I and depend on right now it's all volunteers because we don't you know we, we the money you raise we don't we can't, can't pay people to do something the other thing i will i will promote shame not shamelessly because i'm very is that i'm working very hard to save a family in who was in afghanistan oh wow we, we moved them to pakistan with five young girls whose lives would be over oh if, my god and and um and to save a single family may just be like a drop in the bucket. But it, to me, I, I I was pleased that in my previously I've done that with a young woman from Afghanistan who then who'd read my stuff and wasn't allowed to go to school. And I managed to get her to help not just myself, but other people get her to the United States, get my university to give her a scholarship. And 
and now she's studying physics. But that was very satisfying and it helped one person, especially for someone like me who whose work is very ephemeral is is really among the most satisfying things I can do. Wow, that's wonderful. What a nice way to end. Hey, Lawrence, what a delight to chat with you. Please come back anytime. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. And I will tag you uh, on Twitter once the chat is up, which is hopefully later today. Thank you so much for coming on. Real delight. It's been a real pleasure for me too. Cheers. Thank you, Lawrence.